Hello. My name Hello. is Michelle O'Brien. Hi. And I will be having a conversation with Spree for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 8, 2017, and this is being recorded over the telephone with Michelle uh, in New York and Spree in Tennessee. Hello, Spree. Hi, Michelle. Uh, so tell me about where you are. Since we're not in the same place, could you just describe where you're yes. calling from? I am about an hour and a half outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in a little town called Liberty. And around Liberty, there are other towns, um, Dowelltown being one of them, uh, um, I'm trying to think. There's a lot of uh, queer communities in this area is what I'm trying to get at. And um, Ida being one of them, that's the one in Dowtown. And then Short Mountain Sanctuary is in Liberty. I'm in a place called Sassafras in Liberty. And um, there's little clusters of uh, gay-identified and trans-identified communities popping up all around this area, which is very intriguing and interesting. And over the last 20 years, many more communities have popped up. Uh, I want to hear all about your life, um, but maybe before we dive into your childhood, you could tell us a little bit about the kinds of gay communities and trans communities that are popping up uh, in that area of Tennessee. What are okay. they like? There's what? What's what it like? What are they like? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Short Mountain, let's start with Short Mountain because it's being the oldest. Um, it's been around, oh my gosh, 30-plus um, years. Um, it started as a, a hippie commune and then eventually transmogrified into a um, radical ferry community, which it is now. And then um, about 20 years ago, I could have that wrong. Short Mountain could be way older than that, but let's just use that as an example. Then about 20 years ago, a group of people wanted to live at Short Mountain, but Short Mountain was like, no, we're full. We're not going to have any more people. And so one of the uh, people that had been around the area and had lived in the area for a while took them to see a piece of property and said this piece of property is coming available so they bought that and it was originally all gay men or queer men and that was the property that became known as Ida it was originally Idle Dandy Arts and then that got just whittled down to Ida and over the last 20 years, it's kind of shifted into a much more trans-identified, not starting necessarily with Plan Z, but Plan Z having a lot of um, to do with that. That was a trans group that came and had an organizing meeting at IDA. And um, I realized we talked about it, but they didn't hear us talking about it. So uh, I should probably tell what it is. And uh, feel free to join in if I'm not doing it justice. But it was a group of people who came together and uh, had this organizing meeting called Plan Z. And um, 
then little by little, there was a couple of those, or maybe even three of them, and then that eventually segued into what is now known as Ida Palooza, which is a music festival, a queer music festival. Um, or we might have had Ida Palooza before that, but in a different formation, and then the two kind of merged together, and now it's a big um, queer music festival. Lovely. But yeah, Ida I... itself, I'm sorry. No, no, go right ahead. I was going to say, Ida, the community itself is much more trans-identified now. That's great. I, I, we were, before we started recording, I mentioned attending the first Plan Z in, I think, 2004. Okay. Oh, no, it was earlier than that. I think it was Yeah, I think it was earlier than that. Yeah, maybe around 2002 then. That sounds okay. right to me. Okay, yeah. yeah, I think there might have been two or three different Plan Zs and then yeah. eventually it kind of merged together with what we had, because we had already had a thing called Ida Palooza, but it was very different. It was kind of like more, you know, like you would come together for a week or 10 days and do crafts, and, and then the culmination of it with one of them, the, all week was a circus theme, and at mm-hmm. the end of that, when we went into a big gay disco in um, uh, Nashville and uh, did, a cir- did a thing that we called Cirque de Surreal, and it was kind of like, you know, a fairy version of Cirque du Soleil. And we took over the disco for that night and um, uh, put that on. And then after that, it turned into the Queer Music Festival. Lovely. And you mentioned uh, that this, these are radical fairy communities. Can you tell us right. what that is? Well, radical fairy is um, the way I used to uh, explain it is it's a self-identified movement of uh, originally queer men um, that got together and decided they didn't necessarily like the whole um, you know, club scene or bar scene and wanted to like get back to nature and get back to the woods. And it started with a gathering in Colorado in 1978, I think, was the first one, something around then. Or, no, maybe even before that, because I, let me think about that for a minute. Okay. Well, maybe we, we'll, we'll get to that in the, when I get to the order of when I meet her. Sure. How, how about that? Yeah, I grew up in Oregon, and I met a number of radical fairies that were affiliated with a land out there called Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek, yes, that's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful place. I had the pleasure of staying there for an extended summer. Um, well, I don't know how much you want to go in order, but... Um, I was part of a fairy theater company that me and Maxine, who you've asked about previously before the recording started, started together with a couple of other fairies. And uh, originally we were called the Emma Goldman Gypsy Players. Oh, wow. And that transferred into the Eggplant Fairy Players. I don't know if you've heard of either of those, but... um, and we performed at Wolf Creek and got to stay there for a better part of the summer, and it was just glorious. Have you been there? 
I haven't, no. Uh, um, well, if you ever get yeah. the chance, it used to be quite special. Yeah, I bet. Okay, um, so tell me about your childhood. Where, where did uh, you grow up? Okay, I was born in Houston, Texas, and I lived there until I was 10 years old. And as I say, like to say in my dramatic way, went from a bad to a worse situation and was moved to the depths of southern Georgia, about as far south as you can go in Georgia and not be in Florida, and um, in a little town called Brunswick, Georgia, and um, lived there from the ripe old ages of 10 to 17, which as you can imagine for uh uh, other identified person growing up in that kind of environment with like a lot of rednecks and um, kind of backwards thinking people, it was not the best environment to be in. And so I finished high school early and I had enough credits to graduate. So I went off to the University of Georgia. And after I had been there for a semester, I went back to graduate from high school with the rest of my class. And I immediately went to go to acting school in California. Now, I was supposed to go back to um, Georgia, to go back to the University of Georgia. But once I made it to California, I was like, oh, no, there is no way I'm going back to Georgia. So, so tell, us, tell us a little bit about Brunswick, Georgia. What was your oh, life like? Oh, it, it was at the time, although I've heard it's changed quite a bit since the time I was there, but it was, the big thing that it was known for was a naval base called Glencoe. So Brunswick is in a county called Glen County. And like I went to Glen County Junior, well, first I went to Sydney Lanier Elementary School because we moved in the middle of fifth grade. So I went to Sydney Lanier Elementary School. And then after that, I went to Glen County Junior High and after that, I went to Glen Academy because, see, it's all in Glen County, which is based off of uh, um, Sidney Lanier, who is a poet, wrote this poem called The Marshes of Glen. And so everything's named Glen after that. So Glen County Junior High, Glen Academy, and, um, you know, like, so Glencoe was the naval station. It was the big base there in Brunswick and that was sort of other than that and two chemical plants one was called Hercules Chemical and the other was Georgia Pacific Paper Company and they just spewed out you know yeah. industrial smog and waste into the atmosphere and I remember especially riding on the school bus and one of our school bus drivers used to say, I just love that fresh, clean pine smell. And we all just thought that was so ridiculous because it didn't f smell like fresh pine to any of us. It just smelled like, you know, industrial waste. <laughs> but when, she'd say, I when, love that fresh, clean pine smell. Yeah. When and, do you think it first occurred to you that something was wrong with the, this industrial waste getting spewed out? Oh, I would say probably in, like when I was in junior high being bused from, uh, you know, my home to pass by these chemical plants and smelling that yeah. smell and thinking that doesn't smell right. And do you think that was, you had like a, 
uh, some sort of connection or interest in in nature at that point or the environment or the land? I'm sure, I'm sure I did. That? I'm sure I yeah. was like thinking this is not good for the environment. And, yeah. and the Georgia Pacific plant was right on a river, which was not good for that environment. I'm sure with all the pollution they must have pumped out into that river, which was, you know, an inlet off of the coast because Brunswick is right on the coast. So, what it is is Brunswick is like actually on the, you know, mainland, and then off of that are these little islands. There's like Saint Simon's Island, and Jekyll Island, and um, they're kind of more um, a touristy kind of, uh, you know, attraction sort of places. Did you ever? Uh, did you ever? How can I say it? Did you have it as a child? Did you connect with nature very much? Did you spend? Any oh time yeah, by the I love the nature the there. Beach? It's a very beautiful place. There's lots yeah. of very old, big oak trees, um, wow. you know, growing all around, and lots of uh, you know, oh squirrels and birds, and of course, if you went to the beach, seagulls and turtles and you know, all kinds of beautiful nature. The nature was just yeah. uh, exquisite. But it was just sad that it was in this kind of backwoods um, mentality. Uh, well, I don't want to give it such a bad name now because, like I said, it's been, you know... Well, I graduated high school in 1975, so that gives you an idea of how long it's been since I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what were your parents like, or the people that you lived with? They were very religious, and as a result, did not um, uh, condone or appreciate the fact that I was, um, uh, you know, little budding queer. And um, I have an older gay brother, and he lives in San Francisco. But he, hello. Yes. Oh, you're still there. Okay. I heard a click and got scared. Um, well, not scared, but, you know, um, worried. Uh, but I have an older gay brother who lives in San Francisco, and he was always kind of quiet and went off to his room to read a book and didn't have that much to do with the rest of the family, where I was the youngest child out of five, and I was kind of like, oh, look at me, look at me, look at what I can do. And I was always like, you know, putting on little shows and dressing up. And um, But they were so religious. And the thing is that there's no getting around um, the fact that in the Bible it says that it's a sin. And it's a sin. And there's no getting around that. And in fact, um, well, if you want to keep going on chronologically, I can kind of, or do you have more questions about Brunswick and my family, or do you want me to who, tell who you Who in your family that? did you maintain any contact with? Uh, my brother, my gay brother. Yeah. Everybody else. So what you moved, you didn't speak with anyone else after that? Well, I did. Okay, so then, I'm, like I said, I moved to California to go to acting school. I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Pasadena, mm -hmm. California. 
And um, since I knew I didn't want to go back to uh, Georgia, I went to Ventura, California, and got enrolled in a school there called Ventura College and um, majored in theater, of course, and, um, you know, was starting to come into my own then and realized, you know, there's something different about me. I mean, I I realized it in junior high because they were always calling me a faggot and, you know, saying mean things about me that I didn't really understand because, number one, there was nobody there that I was really attracted to because most of the uh, males were, you know, mean bruiser type people that I was like, why would I be attracted to any of them? So it was very confusing to me, like, you know, they're saying I'm this one thing, but I don't get it because I'm not attracted to any of them. And um, so when I made it to California, I started to, you know, meet other queer people and come into my own and uh, stuff like that. And two things happened. One that I wanted to tell you about was I wrote, I spent two years writing in a journal a letter to come out to my parents. And when I finally wrote it out, it was 11 pages long, handwritten. And I mailed it to my parents, and I mailed a copy to my brother. And my brother sent me a picture of these people. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but like down in Mexico somewhere, they like dive off these cliffs into the water. It's very dramatic. Like it's, they're very high cliffs, and they dive yeah. off the cliffs. And he sent me a picture of one of them, like literally in midair, diving off the cliff. Like about that's what you were doing. Right. And he said, and then the inside he said, congratulations on taking the plunge. And then the other thing he said to me was that he felt more than anything else that from reading that letter, he felt that there was a sense of love, that that was the reason why I wanted to tell them this information wow. about me. And the letter I got back from my parents was, we got your letter, and they just thought it was the most bitter, hateful letter that they had ever gotten, and um, just, you know, so that shows you, like, how two people from the same family can have two such opposite opinions about something, like, because it really meant something to me that here he said, you know, it was a basis of love that I wrote the letter, and then they're saying it's this bitter, hateful letter. So, um, but, yeah, so eventually, I mean, it was a couple years, I think, but eventually they disowned me, and then we never talked after that. Well, um, well it, it didn't... Them- sorry? When you think of them, do you feel angry or sad? Or I feel what, angry what mostly at my now? father because I think my father yeah. did a number on my mother because when my mother died, my father basically uninvited me to my mother's funeral. Wow. And so I feel really angry at him because I feel like in a way like maybe he – because I know that my mother said that she thinks that it's her fault that um, – Oh, that's another very interesting story I should tell you. So one summer I was visiting them on vacation, and we were, they waited until I was driving the car on the way to the airport for me to go back 
to um, Texas at that point, and they said, we, got let we talked to your brother, and your brother told us that he is gay. And my father said, and I told him, don't you use the word gay to me because all the gay men that I've known have been terribly unhappy, depressed people. And it just because they're, you know, they're tortured Christians is the type of men that he knew, you know, that poor things that must have been, you know, he, that he knew of. And then my mother said, everything I've ever read says it's the mother's fault. And then my father kind of obligatorily said, and everything I've ever read says it's the father's fault. And I at least had enough wherewithal at that point to say, well, that's interesting because everything I've ever read says that it's nobody's fault. And I had not come out to them yet at that point. But they were worried and wanted to know if maybe I needed to take, you know, male hormones and things like that. And, you know, it was just incredulous to me. They wanted me to see a psychiatrist. And thank goodness I refused, because you can imagine, you know, they said, oh, we know of this thing called the H persuasion. And the H persuasion was to um, correct homosexuals, you know, to make them yeah. heterosexual. What so thank year goodness did you come I, out to them? When did I? Yeah, what year? Uh, that was probably, so I moved to California in 78. And I um, probably came out to them in, like, 80. Because, like I said, I spent two years writing that letter in my journal. Yeah. So. And what was, was your like, life like in California when you were in acting school and in college? Oh, it was fabulous. It was so much better than in Georgia. Because, like I said, I started to meet, you know, other queers and, realize, oh, it's okay, you know, I'm not the only one, and um, I mean, there was a couple that I suspected back in Brunswick, but, um, you know, nobody ever that would admit to it, and, um, you know, to meet out gay people was like a, a, a wild awakening, and um, so I started going to um, uh what they called rap groups at the gay community center in, mm -hmm. uh, in LA. And, um, it was, the, I mean, most of us were too young to go to bars. So what we do is go to these rap groups because we couldn't get into the bars. And then afterwards we'd go sit at a coffee shop and just gab and, you know, it was a way to meet people and have fun and stuff like that. And then, um, Okay, it was 1983. Now it's coming back to me. I remember very clearly because in 1983, I, so but from 78 to 83, I was living in Hollywood trying. To, okay, so after acting school, I went to Ventura College for a couple years, and then I moved down to L.A., and I was trying to be a movie star. But you have to understand that this was still the era of Rock Hudson, like Rock Hudson was still alive. And you weren't, I mean, there was no Ellen, there was no Neil Patrick Harris, yeah. there was no, you know, there was like Paul Lind and Charles Nelson Riley, but they weren't going like, oh, well, you know, I'm an open gay man. They were just these kind of odd entities in show business. 
but you had to play this kind of game of like, you know, cutting off this identity of yourself to be able to even get in the door to, you know, audition. And, um, I mean, I got a few things under my belt. I did a couple of movies. I was in a Steven Spielberg movie, which was a colossal flop. I was in four episodes of General Hospital. What movie was that? What? What Steven Spielberg movie were you in? It's called 1941. Like, most people haven't even heard of it. (laughs) Um, It was a... uh, basically a movie about when uh, in L.A. they thought that the Japanese were coming to bomb them, you know, from Pearl Harbor. They thought yeah. the Japanese were coming up the coast and going to bomb them. And it was just this farce about that whole ridiculousness of that. And it didn't do well in the box office at all. In fact, after he made it, he spent more money making that movie within the confines of Hollywood than any other movie that didn't go on location. So let's not compare it to Gone with the Wind because, you know, they actually went to Atlanta. And, but he made it all within the confines of Hollywood, what's considered Hollywood. Like we did it in North Hollywood and, you know, Studio City and all these other places. But he spent $43 million making it. And then it was just such a colossal flop that they said he'll never work again. He's ruined his career. And um, after that, he made E.T. And once he made E.T., they didn't even mention that he made 1941 after he made E.T. So it kind of like, you know, that's how Hollywood works. And anyway, getting on to happier, more, uh, I I didn't get to finish saying that I was also in four episodes of General Hospital. That was my big claim to fame. Uh, But then... I, um, in 1983, I went to my first radical fairy gathering. Now, my brother, my older gay brother, had been schooling me in gay American history by giving me this book by Jonathan Katz, The Amer- Gay American History. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that yeah, book. Yeah, no, I know it. Okay. And he would tell me about Harry Hay and John Burnside and, you know, how they were these important gay figures and, you know, all, all this stuff about how that you know we kind of owe the gay movement to them and all this kind of stuff and so here i am going to my first radical uh very uh, oh so to support my acting career i worked as a telephone operator and i was a telephone operator for the telephone company in hollywood and one day in the bathroom i found this flyer and it was a flyer for this radical fairy gathering and I saw who it was addressed to and I went and gave it to him while he was still working so I couldn't really ask him about it but I just gave it to him and then later when he was on break he saw me and he said oh do you want one of these they sent me two and I was like yeah what is it all about because it was the kind of thing that like I looked at it and I thought it had pictures of men in drag and pictures of men with their faces painted. And I, it was the kind of thing that, like, I knew about all my life, but somehow I didn't know anything about it. You know, I was like, what's it all about? But somehow it spoke to me, like, it was this, and they call it a call. It's called a call, the paper that they put out. And so he gave me one of these calls. 
And miraculously, we both got time off from the telephone company at the same time, which is just unheard of. So it was all kind of meant to be. But we went to our first fairy gathering. It wasn't his first, but he took me. And it was my first radical fairy gathering outside of San Diego in the desert in a place called Madre Grande. And at the first fairy gathering that I went to, well, when I first got there, I got out of the car. I was walking up to this building where they were having lunch. And there was this guy sitting there, and he said to me, well, I'm glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. And I just looked over my shoulder like, who is he talking to? And uh, But he was talking to me. And um, so I go in there, and there's all this food laid out on this table, and they tell me that it's all vegetarian, which is another thing that I've been since 1978, since I moved out from living with my mother, because my mother didn't think that you could live on the planet and not eat meat. And so when I moved out with my mother, I became a vegetarian, and then all this food they told me was vegetarian, and I was like, I've died and gone to heaven. It was just so beautiful. And at this first gathering that I went to, so the first one was in 78 in Colorado, and then there was other ones in Arizona, and and lo and behold, they just put out a call, and 200 men showed up to the first one in Colorado. And I think there was probably... 75 to 100 at the one that I went to. And anyway, Harry Hay and John Burnside were there. And I got to meet them and become friends with them. And then um, I even said to Harry, I said, so what happens, you know, back in L.A. after this? And he goes, oh, well, we always try to have circles and we have circles for a little while. And then it never, nothing ever really happens. It just kind of peters out. And I was like, but Harry, I've never been a part of it before. And um, so we started having circles when we got back to L.A. And uh, within two years, actually within a year of that first gathering, we became known as Star Circle in um, uh, Los Angeles. They named us Star Circle. And we put on our own gathering at that same place, Madre Grande, a year later well it was a little more than a year so the first one i went to was in june or july of 83 and then we put one on over labor day of 84 and what would people do at these gatherings oh gosh like uh dance around a fire like banshees kind of you know like oh and dress up and drag was the main thing that i just like at the very first one that I went to, and I still have it, this little red tutu that I had, which was my piece of drag that I wore all around, watching these other people dress up in like more elaborate outfits. Well, I would dress up with them, but I didn't realize there, there were like not really little cliques, but little groups of you know people. It, it was my first gathering, so I didn't know I could just walk up to them and say, "Oh, I want to play with you," you know. It's just a lot of play and fun and dressing up and getting to be kids and, you know, do all the fun stuff you always wanted to do, you know, and um, crafty stuff. And I remember one morning I was eating my breakfast and this gorgeous, gorgeous fairy came up and sat down next to me and started painting his nails. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is so dreamy. 
and I kept thinking like why is this person sitting there talking to me and it was the first time that I ever met another gay man like I've been going to those rap groups and you know stuff but it was the first time I ever met another gay man who I realized had the same consciousness as me about animals and the planet and wow. the earth and all that kind of stuff and I was just like wow I really have you know sort of come home in a way and um, then I realized it was much more important for me to follow my heart and be true to my inner fairy than it was to play this silly Hollywood game you know of trying to be a movie star and so I lasted another two years in Hollywood in 85 and in 85 I packed up my life and took off and went traveling around Europe for four months. And I traveled around Europe for four months and then came back and ended up um, on the East Coast because, you know, you fly in and out of New York. Well, at least back then you did. And I landed in New York and um, called my brother in San Francisco and called a friend of mine that I was supposed to go live with in San Francisco. And I just thought, what am I doing? You know, here I am in New York, and I always wanted to try living in New York. And I was like, well, now's the time. If you're going to do it, now's the time to do it. And I kind of hurt my friends' feelings because they thought I was coming to San Francisco and going to live with them. And instead, I ended up staying in New York, and I lived in New York from 85 to 90. And that's when we get into the ACT UP years, if you're ready to get into that. I mean, I Uh, tried my hand at ACT a couple more questions about the radical fairies in California before we sure. get into that. Sure. And I and so I also I, went to Yeah. I'm sorry. You go. No, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I also went to gatherings at Wolf Creek. I went with Harry and John on a road trip and we went to uh well we actually went to a I'm sorry, we went to a, a gathering at Brighton Bush, Oregon. But we stopped yes. at Wolf Creek on the way. And that was yeah. my first encounter with Wolf Creek. So uh, Harry Hay, you know, uh, I mean, you know this, of course, is quite a famous figure in gay organizing in the 1950s. Oh, yes, yes. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't say that in, like, in the 1940s, he started an organization called the Mattershine Society. Yeah. And the Mattershine Society was one of the first gay groups in um, – you know, openly gay groups in in this country. And uh, the Mattershine Society was, uh, uh, Harry kind of helped start organize that in L.A. And um, then he met John Burnside, and he and John Burnside were a couple. And so once I uh, moved back to L.A. and we started having these circles, every holiday we would spend at Harry and John's house because it was kind of like our home away from home. They were like, you know, our, our fairy home. So we would spend all the holidays at their house and they were just so warm and inviting. And I actually became very dear friends with both of them. And, um, you know, they were just such sweet, sweet men and beautiful people and full of amazing stories. I just can't tell you the nights that I stayed up till one or two in the morning listening to Harry go on about 
you know, all this history and stuff. And, you know, after hearing my brother all these years telling me about what an important figure Harry Hay was, and then um, I actually brought them on that road trip that I was just telling you about to spend the night in San Francisco at my brother's house um, just to sort of, you know, not rub it in his face, but to say, ha ha, look what I did. I made friends with Harry Hay and John Burnside. And <laughs> he was kind of blown away by like, you know, having, you know, kind of schooled me in the gay American history with them. And then, oh, and then, well, I know you want to, uh, do, do you have more questions you want to specifically ask me? Yeah, yeah, I do. So I, I think of, I'm only 38, so I was a oh, okay. child in the early 80s. But You're I think of baby. the early 80s. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but I think of the early 80s as a time that a lot of urban gay male communities were very macho and that trans feminine people like drag queens weren't necessarily given a lot of respect. But the oh. radical fairy community, from what I've heard, has a, has a lot of femininity, of uh, drag queens and uh, 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 exploring and celebrating gay male femininity, even Absolutely. at that time. Absolutely. Can you tell me about how gender oh. was different in the radical fairies than it was in other gay male communities? Well, let me give you an example. Like, So when I grew up, I was, like, from before I really, like, took off and hit puberty, I was a fat little kid. And mm -hmm. um, then suddenly one summer I just shot up and I wasn't so fat anymore, but I still had breasts, like, you know, and I was made fun of a lot. Of course, I, like, hated gym class hated going in the locker room because I was going to be made fun of. So I'd go to the guidance counselor's office and just start crying and going, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. And she'd take pity on me and let me be like a teacher's aide or work in the library or something to get out of having to go to PE and, um, or physical education. That's what they used to call it. And um, so all my life I was made fun of and, uh, because I had, you know, these breasts. And then um, when I met the Radical Fairies, they were like, oh, no, we like your breasts. And it just made me feel like, oh, my God, these people actually like me the way I am. You know, they're not making fun of me. They're not teasing me. They're, you know, they're, they're embracing who I am. And then that, like, gave me a chance to embrace my body and, you know, take it on and, love it for what it was and not be ashamed of the fact that, oh, I have breasts, you know. And um, uh, so that was, yes, very much so. The, the, the radical fairies were very embracing and um, of drag and getting in touch with your inner femininity. And like I said, he was, this guy was painting his nails and, um, you know, and that's 83. It wasn't like the hip thing to do back then to paint your nails. It was kind of like real radical. Um, so, uh, yes, that is exactly what you said. It was dead on in my, in my recollection of it all. 
Were there particular words uh, or identities or labels that people would use to talk about femininity or trans femininities? Oh, in yeah, like, yeah, like sissy and, um, you know, like we called each other girl and, um, I mean, that's, I think that was in, in, in drag queen parlance, too. They would call each other girl and stuff. But I don't know about sissy, like, you know, you, you big sissy or, you know. Um, and, of course, we took on, you know, all the slurs that they threw against us and just put them, you know, uh, what is that, reclaim them, like, you know, fag and queer and... Um, all that kind of stuff. We just, yeah. you know, like we'd say, you big homo. And um, a lot of people had trouble with the word homosexual because that was still very clinical and um, considered. But I remember people saying, you big homo. And Mary was another one. We called each other Mary and girl and um, sissy and... Um, called each other sisters, like we said we were each other's sisters and girlfriends and stuff like that. Wow. So so you moved to New York in 1985, you said? 85, exactly. I moved to New York, and I tried to do the acting thing there and to support my acting career, as I had done in California. I did telephone jobs including being the switchboard operator at 30 Rockefeller Center for NBC. I was a switchboard operator at NBC for a number of years, and um, I worked nights. I would work the night shift, uh, you know, midnight through 8 a.m., and then in the day I could do my fairy stuff. And then I heard about this group, you know, that was – already formed but it was you know getting off the ground and it was called act up and um being the fairy spirit that i am you know i started going to meetings and then they would you know talk about demonstrations and stuff like that and they would say like okay now we want people to wear you know bright colors and um big signs and bandanas, anything you can do to draw attention to the movement. So when I would come in my bright drag and stuff like that, they totally embraced me and made me feel so good about the fact that I was being out there enough that I would come in drag and draw attention to myself. And, um, you know, they they didn't do that thing that the macho gay men that you were talking about did and frown down on me and say you're ruining the parade or you're you're ruining our demonstration or whatever they were like yeah come on get to the front of the line and you know they they just totally embraced me and made me feel really good about myself again so i kind of became so act up was a lot more embracing of of gender diversity and and gay femininity than other gay spaces at the time yes and I think that was because we needed to do anything we could to call attention to this movement because, you know, people were dying. And so so what if I was a man in a dress? You know, then people would look at me and then they would maybe read the sign and maybe, you know, stop and talk to me and 
find out some information about what was going on in the in the protests that we were at or whatever and so i kind of became a call celebra um in act up oh and then i went from working at um uh nbc to working at the national aids hotline oh wow i did a little skit a routine i wrote down some of the funny calls of people calling up asking you know and again i worked on the midnight shift so i was there from midnight to 8 a.m and we would get lots of calls ridiculous calls of people asking how they can get aids and you know you know just these really ridiculous whacked out questions um i could give you a couple of examples of them but anyway i started doing it as a routine and i would do it at the act up anniversary parties and people loved it they just thought it was the best thing it was so hilarious and uh, so i kind of became a celebrity and act up for doing that at the anniversary parties so it incorporated humor and performance and and totally. uh, telephone work all these different parts of your life totally totally acting uh uh humor and a lot of people um well now now I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent but um I'll try to you, well I imagine you have more questions about about act up I've many I go many questions uh, before uh, asking a lot about ACT UP, can I ask uh, about your telephone operating work in Los Angeles and New York? Of course. So, I'd love to talk in, about that. Yeah. Were you in uh, Communications Workers of America, CWA? I was. I was the picket captain yeah. of CWA 12222, and we, did, we were part of what was considered the last great strike in America because it was the last time like I worked through the breakup of AT&T and it was the last time that all the contracts across the country were going up at the same time and we went out on strike and I was the picket cap picket captain and wow. um and I got to be interviewed on the news and it had my name in one color print and underneath it in quotes it said operator and i just loved that when i saw it on the news it was so fun what year was that strike that strike was okay so i quit working there in 85 i'm going to say that strike was in 83 or 84 wow probably 83 because they busted it up i worked through the breakup the divestiture as it, as it was properly called not the breakup but um the divestiture and i ended up at the very end working for AT&T communications and but when it was still it was originally Pacific Telesis which was a part of Pacific Bell which you know it was so weird the way they had all these baby bells and you know like all across the country like each just about every state had its own you know bell bell operating company and like pacific bell was the operating company it was more than just california but but it was like nevada and other states yeah. surrounding california but yes i was in cwa workers of america i sure was and i i think of telephone operators as being a traditionally women's profession 
were yes, there again what was the again, gender when I started yeah. when I started there um they likened it to flight attendants and that yeah. like 99.999999% of the men that worked there were gay but by the time I finished working there there were straight men that were doing the job as well but yes it was interestingly enough though if you do your history the original original operators were young boys but they were too rude to the customers so they but they could run and they had to do a lot of running back and forth from the position to write messages and stuff like that. And so eventually it segued over to women because women had a more pleasing, you know, tone and were more, you know, accessible to businessmen, let's say. And I used to say, give me a drunk at a payphone any day over an irate businessman because I can deal with a drunk at a payphone, but an irate businessman, oh, they are just, they yeah. think you are like, you know, scum on earth and, you know, just treat you like you're beneath them. And I didn't like that. So again, I would usually work, you know, the night shift or the afternoon evening shift so it was not the I wasn't dealing with the irate businessmen I was dealing with you know less because it was like you know not business hours that I worked so um, and, and but yeah no it was it was great it was great fun and it's great to know that there's somebody that knows what an operator is because now so many of these kids growing up they lived their whole life not ever knowing what an operator is. Yeah. And I'm like, I have but that was my bread and CWA. butter. I did that today. I'm sorry? I have great love for CWA and its history. Oh, how do you have that connection? Oh, just through the labor movement, knowing, knowing a lot of CWA members and staff around okay. the country. Okay. Yeah. I was also a um, member of the Telephone Pioneers. I don't know if you know about them, but they're not... It's not a, a, I think it's an offshoot of the union, but it's not in the union necessarily. It's just the Telephone Pioneers of America are, um, you know, like people that like, you know, uh, old telephones and, you know, the a whole history of it and all that kind of stuff. And I actually started out, funny enough, that we're on this uh, – uh, Topic as a directory assistance operator, and I did that for two years, and then I got to be the uh, O operator, and that was just like, oh my god, because I in my skit that I used to do, I was like, because the O operator has all the power, because you can cuss at directory assistance and hang up and then get a dial tone, but with the operator, you don't get a dial tone until we say you get a dial tone. Wow. <laughs> So if you cussed us out and then hung up, picked up the phone again, I'd be like, yes, I'm still here. You were saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, among the CWA people I know are uh, some friends who organized with the campus workers in the Tennessee public uh, colleges right now. 
And oh, they're really? uh, CWA members, the secretaries and janitorial staff maintenance workers in Tennessee colleges are members of a non-majority union. You know, it's tough having a public sector union in Tennessee, and they're sure. CWA members. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. That's yeah, amazing. a couple of very good friends are in uh, in uh, Nashville and Knoxville and um, doing uh, uh, union organizing with the CWA. But do you know, is there such a job as an operator these days? No, there know. are certainly telephone workers, um, uh, but they're not, they're, it's nothing like the switchboard operators before. Right. You know, here right. in New York, Verizon, uh, they, Verizon, well, CWA has had a couple of strikes over the last few years, just a short strike with AT&T and then a Verizon worker strike a couple of years ago. And uh-huh. we try to support them and help them out whenever we can. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. great. Go. Go, Michelle. So, so um, act up. So that's really lovely about them being welcoming of your gender. Oh, and, it, it, and I don't think I would have, you know, even lasted or, or stuck around if they had been, you know, looking down their nose at me like the way, yeah. you know, a lot of, even like, you know, the gay pride movement. Like I said, there were still people that would be like, you need to go to the back of the parade because you're holding us back or you need to get yeah. your own parade, you know, because, you know, of being in drag. Whereas right. ACT UP was like, get to the front, go up to the front, you know. And oh, it was just so, such, so refreshing and so embracing. And again, you know, made me feel so good about myself. And right now I'm even looking at a picture of a demonstration that we had in around City Hall, where mm-hmm. the, the joke was that we were going to levitate City Hall. And uh, people had made these posters. I don't know if you remember this or not. Well, probably you don't because you're, you're 38, you said? Yes. Okay. Well, there was a time when Ed Koch was the mayor of New York, and he came, right. he came out as heterosexual. Like on the cover of New York Newsday, there's a picture of him, and then it says, I'm heterosexual. And so they got these covers and they put them on poster board. So it has Koch saying, I'm heterosexual. And then they would put dot, 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 and I'm, and then it would be like Marlena Dietrich, Judy Garland, you know, all these different people. And I have flowers in my hair and this bright frilly top on. And somebody handed me one that said, and, and I'm Cary Grant. And the photographers just went wild. And I actually ended up on page three of the next edition of New York Newsday holding that poster. And I have a framed picture of it in my room that is one of my fondest memories of ACT UP. Do you remember other drag queens or trans feminine people in, the, um, in ACT UP at the time? Oh, sure. Not... Um you know, not to the, to the degree that I could just tell you, oh, yeah, I was friends with this person or that person. But surely the fairies, the more fairies started getting involved, yeah. the more than they started, you know, dressing up with me. And, and then we started having our own, 
you know, little, not affinity group, because we were never an affinity group, but I was in different affinity groups. I was in a couple of, of affinity groups in um, uh, ACT UP. In fact, one, uh, the original one was called MHA, which when we first made the appointment was for Metropolitan Health Association. It stood for Metropolitan Health Association. And um, this guy, uh, no, God, now his name's going to fly out of my brain right when I was going to tell you the story, but he was the Secretary of Health under Koch. And Joseph, oh, what is his name, Joseph? I'll find out for you. But he basically, with the stroke of a pen, uh, uh, cut in half the number of people suspected in the New York City area to be infected with HIV. So as a truly budgetary measure, he just cut the number in half. And um, I want to say Joseph Smith, but I don't think that's right. I, I will find out there for you the before this is over. Stephen Joseph, who is Stephen Joseph, committed. that's it. Yeah, that was it, Stephen Joseph. And so yeah. we made an appointment with him under the Metropolitan Health Association and uh, refused to leave. We just did a sit-in in his office. And then we made his life a living hell. I mean, we found out. So when we were in there, somebody lifted a copy of his schedule. And we went, like, so if he was having lunch in Chinatown with someone, we would just show up in the restaurant and surround his table and start saying shame, shame, shame. Because, I mean, what a ridiculous thing to do. Like, if anything, he should have doubled the number instead of cutting it in half, you know, to get more money for HIV and AIDS. But he just cut it in half. And so, um, yeah, it was Stephen Joseph. You're exactly right. And um, so we literally drove that man to the breaking point almost by going to his townhouse, his home in the upper 90s, and going outside and having demos in the middle of the night and just, you know, raising all kinds of ruckus with him. And um, there's a very funny picture of me in a polka dot sundress and sunglasses, and I'm sitting at the head of his table, and he got mad that I took his seat because they all got up and left, and I sat down in his chair. Well, he pulled up a chair right beside me, and there's a picture of me and him side by side taken together by this photographer who, I won't remember his name, but he was friends with Susan Sarandon, so he was quite a well-known photographer, and it's a beautiful picture of me and Stephen Joseph sitting at the head of his table. <laughs> wow. What were the other affinity groups you were in? Oh, so the other affinity group that I was in was, so Metropolitan Health Association kind of segued into an affinity group with this other affinity group. And we were the first group of, so everybody that got arrested, mostly the cases would be dismissed because they would throw out the charges, throw out the charges, throw out the charges, until then it got down to like two people. And they would say, really, Your Honor, do you think two people were able to shut down the traffic on Wall Street for a significant amount of time? And then they would just throw out those charges too. So almost every case was dismissed, 
except there was this one case where with Stephen Joseph, we didn't want to have it dismissed. And they took us to trial for criminal trespass in the third degree for sitting in his office. And this was a different time, a subsequent time to that first time I was just telling you about. But we went to trial and we had a three week trial. And as a, a result of that, we got nicknamed Surrender Dorothy. So our ACT UP affinity group was called Surrender Dorothy. And we literally, so I got to be a supervisor at the National AIDS Hotline, and I immediately hired all my friends from ACT UP to work the midnight shift with me so we could really tell them, you know, like what was going on you know, like the drugs in the pipeline, because they basically, it was a government-funded hotline, and they basically wanted you to just tout ACT, because that was the only FDA-approved drug at the time. And they just wanted you to tell them about ACT, but of course, we'd tell them about, you know, black market drugs and all this kind of stuff, because we were, you know, going to ACT UP meetings and then coming there afterwards and working the phones. And um, so we would work all night, get off in the morning, go downtown, go in the, go outside the courtroom, and I literally changed and wore a different drag outfit every single day of the trial. And then when we found out we were going to have this thing called a sentencing hearing where she basically said we had a three-week trial, and at the end of the trial, this Laura Drager was the judge's name, and she said, well, what you all have done is break the law, and you've shown me, like we showed her a video of us, you know, breaking into his office, and and she said, you've proved to me that you did it, so I have to find you guilty, and but because of that, you need to be punished, and so what I'm doing is I'm sentencing you to uh, 10 days with the Department of Sanitation. Well... If you know anything about people with HIV and AIDS is collecting garbage is not a healthy thing for them to be doing. So we got three weeks to go away and come back and make these sentencing statements. And we're talking people that were in treatment and data and these groups that were some of the most eloquently spoken people in ACT UP that knew more about how the virus worked than any doctor in the CDC, I can imagine. And we came back, and I actually got a, a Joan Crawford from Dynasty was on at the time, and I did an outfit similar to her when she went into the courtroom the first time, and I had a big hat on, and I went in and sat in the, because there were so many of us, we, there were 13 of us, so we sat in the jury box, and the bailiff came over to me and said, I'll have to ask you to take off your hat. I said, well, let me just ask you this. If I was a woman, would you ask me to take off my hat? And he said, yes, I actually, he had to think about it for a minute, but he goes, yes, actually I would. And I said, well, all right, then I shall take off my hat. And I did, but I was like kind of pushing the point, like you're not getting away with this if, you know, a woman could sit here in the jury box with a hat on. And so, um, but this, this, the speeches that the people gave were so eloquent. And, I mean, people were in tears over these speeches because they were so beautiful and eloquent. And baby is basically trying to get through to her because I thought there's no way, 
you know, there's no way we're going to be getting through to this woman. Like she was a young, liberal, you know, Koch-appointed judge. So we thought, you know, we might stand a chance. But once she sentenced us to the Department of Sanitation, I thought, that's it. You know, and but she changed her mind. She, after hearing the speeches, she said, okay, you've convinced me. Because people were telling her how dangerous it would be for people with compromised yeah. immune systems to be collecting garbage. And so she said, you've convinced me. I'm going to change it, and I'm going to sentence you to 10 days with God's love we deliver. So we won that victory. But it, essentially what happened was, then it switched from the Koch administration to the Dinkins administration, and the, mm-hmm. and the papers got pushed to the bottom of the pile. So, like, nothing really ever happened with it. It just, like, Dinkins, it didn't behoove Dinkins to go ahead and prosecute us with something that happened under the previous administration. So we, we never did the 10 days with God's love we deliver, but we at least won the judge over at the end. What were people's backgrounds before coming into ACT UP? You told us about your backgrounds, but do you have a sense of the kinds of lives oh. that people came from? Yes, like they were like these brilliant minds, like uh, Jim Igo, Mark Harrington, uh, some of the mucky mucks of ACT UP that, like I, I said, were in the treatment and data uh, support group, which was like, you know, they were the ones that knew all about the drugs that were out there and what drugs worked and what drugs didn't and, like, you know, basically, like, how AZT was killing people and stuff like that. And, um, oh, I, I'm getting ahead of myself with this play that I keep wanting to tell you about, but I'm trying to go chronologically. So, um, but, no, they were, like, they they had very scientific minds, like, you know, and I don't know exactly what their backgrounds are, but I imagine they came from Ivy League schools and were, you know, they were like very, very brilliant people. So highly educated, you think? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how, how, do you remember anything about how money worked in ACT UP? Like uh, whether there were costs for these posters and, demonstrations. Oh, no, what they did was, it was so genius because it was like, I mean, we're talking like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people at the meeting, and there was people that were graphic design artists, and so, and there was artists, like, you know, um, Keith Haring would do a poster, or, and then the graphic design artists would get it and just like print off like whole batches of them, so the money... I don't ever remember, I, I'm sure they did talk about money and how it was um, uh, handled and stuff like that, but I don't remember them ever saying we need, you know, money for pens or poster board or anything like that because these graphic design artists that were in ACT UP would supply them. So that's why some of those, I don't know if you've ever seen some of those um, yeah. art exhibits where it's the ACT UP art. Yeah, you know, just from the posters that were like, you know, exquisite pieces of work, because artists would design them, and the the, the graphic artists would print them up, and you know, they do it all, you know, under the table or you know, 
like I guess like I did, like at night, you know, working at night when the office was closed and printing them up and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure there was costs that had to be because they would like also charter buses to take us down to like March on Washington's like for, you know, abortion rights and uh, stuff like that. Um, so they chartered buses and I don't know where that money came from. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't really remember. Do you remember? But I'm sure uh, they talked about it at the meetings. I just would probably yeah. not be interested. Do you remember uh, it, disagreements at the meetings? Like what, what people oh, yeah. disagreed on? What sort oh, of Oh, yeah. Stuff? Oh, just about, like, you know, how to move forward. And, uh, and then... Uh, getting ahead of myself again uh, with ACT UP San Francisco and how they splintered off into two groups. There was ACT UP Golden Gate and ACT UP San Francisco, right. like old school and new school. And it all had to do with basically a group of people who didn't even believe that HIV caused AIDS. So there was right, the arguments about those kind of things. Yeah. Uh, and in New York, um, during the years that you were active, do you remember what some of the big debates were about? Oh, more like about, like, uh, um, uh, you know, how did we want to proceed with, you know, uh, uh, a certain demo or a certain, like, you know, some people thinking we needed to do, you know, one thing, other people thinking we needed to highlight, like, what we needed to highlight as a, as a goal of the, like, what the goal was, you know, say, some people thought it should be about treatment and data, and other people thought it should be more about, you know, hands-on caring for people that had HIV and AIDS. And, you know, funny enough, it was very staggering to me how at meetings or just within the group itself, people were willing to put their butts down in the middle of Wall Street or whatever street, you know, 6th Avenue, 7th Avenue, whatever street in New York City, sit their butts down in the pavement, get hauled off by the police, go to jail, you know, get processed, the whole nine yards. But then when it came to asking for people to, like, you know, sit with people or help, you know, a person that had gotten sick, it was much harder for people to put their hands in the air and go, yes, I'll do it. And I found that so interesting that, you know, there were people, don't get me wrong, there were people that they, that, that was their, their gig, that they would, you know, go and sit with people and help them and, you know, get them their pills and whatever they needed and stuff like that, but it was much harder for people to put their hands in the air to do it on a personal one-on-one -on -one basis than it was for this, you know, giant that we've got to slay sort of thing. Why do you that think that sense? was? I think it's just it's because it made it so personal. Yeah. You know? Of course, every week it was like we would hear a litany of, like, people who were tested positive or sick or dying and all that kind of stuff. And you just kind of get numb to it, you know? Like, yeah. I, I myself personally got numb to it. And I remember 
this dear friend of mine who used to live at Short Mountain and uh, was one of the first people I knew who uh, had KS lesions all over her body, and um, her name was Pearlie, and she died. And I was in San Francisco at the time, and I walked into the kitchen of the house we were staying at, and somebody said, Pearlie just died. And I said, oh, really? And they might as well have told me she had gone back to Australia. She was from Australia. And they might as well have told me she went back to Australia because, you know, it was just another piece of information. And I remember my friend asking me, like, what do you think that was about, your reaction? You know, like, you might want to check yourself on that one. And so I did, and I thought, yeah, you know, I've just become numb because it was at the point, like, if I heard of one more person testing positive or one more person dying, I was just going to break. You know, I wasn't going to be able to handle it anymore. And so I never really processed the thing with my friend Pearlie until one day I was with the same friend and we were visiting his parents in Sarasota, Florida, and the Names Project had brought pieces of the quilt there. And we came around a corner and there was a panel for Pearlie and I just lost it. I broke down in tears and was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And, you know, people were running up to me, giving me Kleenex and like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? And it was just like, it was like the dam broke or something, you know, it was just built up inside of me. And same thing with my mother dying and me telling you my father wouldn't invite me to the funeral uh, or disinvited me to the funeral. For two years, I was in therapy at the gay uh, center in New York, and I didn't cry for two years. And I cry at movies. I, dr- I cry at dog food commercials, literally. Um, I, I'm a crier. So I didn't cry for two years. And there was a point in the gay pride parade where they ask you to have a moment of silence. And the fairies, typical is that the fairies made a circle, held hands, and all sat down in the middle of the street. And the dam just broke, and I just started bawling and bawling and bawling. So I think it's like we handle grief when we're able to. But I think that, to get back to the question you asked, it's just too personal. You know, when it's like, can you come help somebody, you know, sit with them, help them take their pills? It's like, you know, putting a face to this ogre that we're trying to slay. And it, it just makes it too personal. That's what I think. Yeah. And you said there was a point at which radical fairies started getting more involved with yeah. ACT UP? Yeah. In fact, in the picture I was telling you about where it says, and I'm Cary Grant, I'm kind of surrounded by fairies because that City Hall one in particular, a lot of fairies came to. Now, some of them look like they stepped out of the village people, but they're still there. <laughs> What There's one guy that, with a really big mustache, like the, the motorcycle guy. Yeah, how did that shift then your experience of ACT UP or the environment at ACT UP? To have oh, it just made me happy people. that the two worlds kind of collided and that, you know, yeah. now my friends were getting involved in, you know, political activism. Yeah. Uh, because we always when, had been with Harry yeah. and them. Like, they started this group in L.A. called the Purple People, 
and we would dress up in purple and go to demos and you we would be part of the rainbow coalition for um uh, Jesse Jackson yes Jesse Jackson thank you I'm, I think my mind is working so fast that I'm losing names but um anyway um we would dress up in purple and we were called the purple people so we were still doing activism but just wasn't on a really big scale and like again the fairies would come and do a demo and stuff like that but not a whole bunch of them would go uh to meetings i mean there was a handful of us that would but right so it's more centered around the actions than the yeah. planning yeah yeah and uh, what I asked earlier about the kind of language within the fairies in California, um, uh, was there a way that you thought about your gender in during this time and act up? Uh, were there words that you that the fairies would use or other people would use to kind of identify the, the, your relationship to gender? Again, you know, like girl, yeah mary um yeah oh mary was a big one say like is is she a mary would or would someone say like oh no it would be like oh mary get over it you know like oh mary like they would just oh mary you or and in fact in living in la when i left la by the time i left i had a household full of fairies living in my one-bedroom apartment and we had a, a whole long list of Marys, like, you know, like you would say Mary Helen or Mary Helen girl. And then we, it got to be like, you know, you would just string it all together. And it would be like Mary Helen Elaine Louise, Mary Helen Elaine Louise girl. And, um, you know, just you just add on to whatever name you were calling them at the time. So... I remember Mary Helen and Lady Louise Girl being a big one. Yeah. Um, tell me about some of the other actions with ACT UP that stand out for you. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I told you about City Hall and the Stephen Joseph uh, fiascos where we like sent him to the breaking point. Um, I remember sitting down, you know, like the one I kind of told you about sitting our butts down in the middle of Wall Street. That was the second anniversary. I missed the first one. So that kind of shows you like when my involvement started, like after the first anniversary, I, I, I wasn't there at the first anniversary, but I was there for the second anniversary. And I remember, um, I was in jail that time with Marsha P. Johnson. Do you know Marsha P. Johnson? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me and about I remember, that. Oh, it was so fun and so funny because I remember, so they put us all in cells and we were in separate cells and they, you know, sit there and they ask you your name, your, your race, your, you know, all this kind of stuff. So they're there and they're, and when we can hear them asking everybody the same questions. And so they get to Marsha P. Johnson and they're like, 
you know, asking her all the questions, and then they're like hair color, and she's like blonde, and the whole cell block just busted up laughing. Like, mm-hmm. and even the cop thought that was hilarious because, you know, Marsha B. Johnson was like, "I'm blonde." <laughs> <laughs> And uh, was she, uh, had she participated in the ACT UP action? Yeah, she would come around. She would do like, she would do the high, the, what I would call the high-end ones, like the anniversary ones and the ones yeah. that were going to get a lot of publicity and stuff. What was, uh, what was she like? She was a sweetie. She was a real sweetie. She, you know, she was a diva for sure. Um, we also got to know her. So, um, I know you want to keep talking about ACT UP and the people in ACT UP, but I knew her later um, when we were performing together when she was in a group called Hot Peaches and I was in the Eggplant Fairy Players. We performed together over in England. So I got to know her a little bit more. What years was was that? Oh, gosh. that's, That's jumping ahead. So I don't know if you're ready to move out of New York yet, but... um, well, I, can see, I was still in New York and still involved in New York and still going to demos and stuff like that. And I'm trying to think other demos that stand out. I'm racking my brain. Like, well, some of the uh, abortion marches in D.C. and the March on Washington, of course, um, the, the abortion rights marches, those were really – we came up with some brilliant chants for those. Um, do you remember one? Um, act up, fight back. Uh, oh, no, I was just going to say it. And that, uh, something is pro-choice. Act up, fight back. Gay and lesbians are pro-choice. Act up, fight back. Gay and lesbians are pro-choice. That was a good right. one. Do you remember a time that you got really mad at other people in Act Up? Good question. Um, I'm sure there were times when I was, you know, uh, differing and had differing points of view when it came to the thing that I was just telling you about with the hands-on caring for people versus the demos and things like that because I thought, you know, we got to take care of each other. Like, this is all well and good that we're out there screaming and carrying on in the streets, but if we can't take care of each other, what's the point, you know? So I think I got mad about that. Um, Yeah. But I don't remember. I think maybe I got up at a meeting or two and went off a little bit about this or that or the other thing, but I couldn't tell you what. Yeah. But it usually had to do with something like that. Yeah. And do you remember the relationship to other movements? Uh, like, would you talked about going to the pro-choice marches. Uh-huh. Um, it, were there other kind of struggles happening at the same time? that? Well, yeah, Queer, Queer Nation was kind of creeping in there around the same time. Yeah. I remember so, do you remember anything along. about that? Do I know anything about it? Do you remember anything about that? Just that they were having meetings, and I remember at some point there was quite a crossover 
with, and I think this was after I had left, there was quite a bit of crossover with Queer Nation and ACT UP, with the meetings. And I think even Queer Nation may be taking over. But don't quote me on that necessarily. Well, I know you're quoting me on everything. So, um, but uh, yeah, like it it sort of segued into Queer Nation or something. Interesting. Yeah. And so your life at this time, you're working the AIDS hotline, like the graveyard shift. You're doing ACT UP all the time. Your right. uh, friends are still radical fairies, mostly. Right. Yeah. And, and then... Uh, and, yeah? Oh, I was just going to tell you what happened with the AIDS hotline. So yeah. the CDC decided that they were going to close down the office in New York City because they were going to save the government a million dollars, like maybe the government had spent too much money on AIDS at that point. And they were going to close down the office and move the entire operation to Research Triangle Park, New York, which, ding, 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 just happens to be the headquarters for, uh, well, at the time, what were they called at the time? Well, GlaxoSmithWelcome, Burroughs Welcome, which were the manufacturers of, you guessed it, AZT. So they couldn't get these people in North Carolina, which at the time they were going to do this was they had 600, less than 600 cases of HIV in the entire state of North Carolina. And we had probably 600 cases within a a five-block radius of our office. And you could hear the people when they called up and they'd say, where are you? And you'd say, New York. They'd say, oh, well, you really know what's going on, don't you? Like, you know, they knew that that was the epicenter of the disease. Right. um, So, but they wanted to save the government a million dollars, so they were going to close down our office because... In order to keep it open, they were going to have to put in new carpet. And we were like, rip the carpet up. We will work on concrete floors. We don't care. We just want to keep this office open. And we pitched a fight like you would not believe to try to keep that office open. And we, uh, uh, what do you call that, Uh, implored the board of directors, we sent them letters, we went to their meetings, we tried and tried everything we could to keep that office open, and in the end, they closed it down because of that thing I told you where me and my friends were telling people stuff that they didn't want us to tell them, and they could tell people in North Carolina, just tell them about AZT, and then they'd only tell them about AZT. It was so political and such a nightmare of a story, but we did get a couple of articles in the newspaper, and Susan Sarandon, the friend of that photographer, was going to help us, but she was too busy at the time working on who knows what. So she. So the hotline did end up moving. Yep, they closed down. Where our office, which started the whole thing on a volunteer basis, like we started it with volunteers, and they shut us down and moved it all to North Carolina. Which I know now, Damon's health crisis in New York has had a hotline for some time. 
but um, that maybe that came later. I don't know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think that came later. This was that number that they used to say that you would see it on TV. That they'd say, if you have a question about AIDS, call one eight hundred three four two AIDS. And yeah. now, if you call it and you get Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, they won't even tell you where they are. They just tell you they're on the East Coast somewhere. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how do you think ACT UP changed you? Oh, my God. You have no idea. It empowered me to be, like, like not take any guff from big corporations. Like, I will get on the phone with customer service and go all the way up the line till I get the manager on the line over a dispute I have with something. And it drives my friends crazy because I'm so, like, I mean, I'm not as determined as I used to be, but I used to be quite, you know, um, uh, an advocate for myself. It really, really changed me a lot in that I don't just roll over and let corporations get away with nickel and diming you to death, you know. Like, so that, that it, fire is still with you. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I was going to tell you what happened when I left New York. Well, I hadn't actually sure. left New York, but they closed the hotline, and I gotten an internship at the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival. And I thought, oh, I'm hot shit now. I'm in the New Jersey Shakespeare Festival. Well, they had us cleaning toilets to learn discipline. And I was like, you know what? what? I think I've learned enough discipline about my art that I don't need to be paying them to clean toilets. So I was like, I'm over this. And I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan to visit my friend Maxine, who's the one you asked about, and it was his birthday. We bought a van together, a 19 blah, 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 Ford Econoline van. Um, I'm going to say 80-something. And this was in 85. No, this wasn't 85. This was like 89, 88, 89. And we, together with that van, started the, Emma Goldman Gypsy Players. And what we did was we got this book called The Gay Yellow Pages, which was out at the time, and we made up a letter, just like a little flyer, that said, you should have us come perform for your group. And we sent it out to all these gay college groups that were listed and social groups, you know. And lo and behold, we started getting answers from places like Missoula, Montana, um, uh, Klamath Falls is it Klamath Falls, Oregon? Yeah, I think it's Klamath Falls. Klamath Falls. All these people that were desperate for some kind of entertainment, just for their group to you know have and to have this like you know radical fairy theater company come and perform for them. And I would do my telephone skits, both the telephone company and the AIDS hotline. It was two different pieces. Um, you know, I sort of tell my history about how, how I started out at the phone company and then moved on to the Ace Hotline. And uh, I had a character called Barbara Broadcast that one of the fairies in L.A. had named me Barbara Broadcast. And um, so uh, I did that. 
and then we would do, did puppets and uh, Dr. Seuss, the Lorax, Winnie the Pooh, um, all different kinds of little fun stuff. And we would go and perform for these community organizations and college groups, and they loved it. They just loved it. They were starved for, you know, any outside attention. And so we did two U.S. tours and two European tours. And the first U.S. tour, any place that asked us, we said yes. So we traveled back and forth across the country like two or three times, not knowing what we were doing. And then the second time, we wrote a two-act play, an original two-act play called Queens Are Wild. And we said, now we're going to do this. And we started out in Boston, and we premiered in Boston, and then we worked our way across the country and then flew out of Boston when we got back and flew to Europe. So we did two U.S. tours and two European tours. And after the second European tour, I said to Maxine, I don't want to go back to America. I just want to stay in Europe. And I actually thought my friend, a Danish friend of mine, was going to marry me because when they got the law to, for gay people to marry, he said, come on over, I'll marry you. And so when I got there to take him up on it, he said he had cold feet because he was in journalism school and he would have to sign a paper saying that he would be fiscally responsible for me and he just didn't feel like he could do that. So I ended up marrying a Dutch lesbian instead and I lived in the Netherlands. And I lived there for two years and um, I uh, uh, came to visit Maxine who had since moved to Ida from Ann Arbor. He was living at Ida and I came to visit him one summer and I've been here ever since. I mean, I've been back, of course, to the Netherlands and Denmark and whatever, but I, I've lived here ever since. And wow. what I wanted to tell you about, the main thing that I kept referencing when I go, oh, I want to tell yeah. you about this, I want to tell you about this is, so a friend of mine named Michael Smith, who was a Toronto fairy and very involved in ACT UP and, um, you know, political uh, stuff up there, did a play called Person Livid with AIDS. And it was a story about his um, uh, uh, life, you know, of uh, coming out HIV positive and having to take all these pills and all this kind of stuff. And I really wanted to get my hands on a copy of the script, or I thought there was a DVD of it, and I have since gotten the DVD. And I'll tell you about this project in a minute. But um, so... By the time I was ready to do this, Maxine said to me, I had already tested HIV positive back when I was in San Francisco. Oh, we ended up in San Francisco for about six months in between tours. And that's when that happened, when I found out that my friend Pearlie had died and I had no reaction. And um, so What Maxine year was that? 1987. Mm-hmm. And um, so I tested positive. I got KS lesions like Pearlie had. And in fact, Pearlie talked to me about like what I may and might not want to do, you know, about that and stuff. And um, uh, so, you know, went on to have full-blown AIDS. And 
um, then Maxine said to me, well, why do you want to tell Michael's story? You've lived through this yourself now. Why don't you tell your own story? So I made my own version of Person Livid with AIDS, which is now both mine and Michael Smith's are on the Internet. And I'll tell you or send you the information about how, if you want to look into them, you can look into them and cross-reference and compare and contrast and stuff like that. But in my person livid with AIDS, I had a skit about a condom recycling factory, which yeah. obviously is kind of a gross uh, little skit, but it was very funny and very, you know, raucous humor. And at one point, um, the person you called Nettles, who's now known as Dashboard, stormed down out of the theater. He was in our theater troupe, stormed down out of the theater and came up on the stage and goes, what is this humor that you're dealing with? This is supposed to be called person livid with AIDS. And I said, um, have you looked up livid in the dictionary? And this is really true. If you look it up in like Merriam-Webster, the first definition is a purple, brownish discoloriza- discolor- discolorization. And oh, wow. I lifted up my shirt and showed him all my lesions, which are purple, and when they get older, they look a little brown. And I said, this is me. This is my body covered with AIDS. And if I choose to deal with, with through humor, then so be it. And he just got, you know, stomped off in a huff or whatever. But that was what made me think of that so many times when we've been talking is that, you know, if I want to deal with it through humor, then that's how I'm going to deal with it. Yeah. So you're living, uh, you uh, toured uh, after New York with Maxine for how long were you all on tour? Two, Two years. And in those two years, we did the two U.S. tours and two Euro- European tours. And you talked about going into these small towns and school groups and community groups. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was that dynamic like? Were, I mean, you all were quite visibly queer, right? Oh, I yeah. Mean, was- and and that, was, that was problematic for some people. And I would at some times get uh, upset with people and, because of my act up years, I think I wasn't afraid to let my anger show. And so, yeah. for instance, in Wenatchee, Washington, which is the Apple capital of the world, if you should ever need to know that in a trivia game, um, they had us perform in the courtroom, an actual courtroom, because the deal was that they took the community center and turned it into a courtroom. And so... And it was great because there was one scene where we did and reenacted an act up trial, and um, so, but there was an American flag at the front of the courtroom, and the first year we just took the flag without asking and put it in the back room because the other scenes are supposed to be Barbara Broadcast's living room, and the second year it, the play actually does happen in Barbara Broadcast's living room, and so I took the flag and moved it back, and the guy asked me. And we kind of got into a got into it about this American flag and how dare you move the American flag. And I was like, well, it's not appropriate for her to have an American flag in her living room because that's not the type of drag queen that she is. She just doesn't have an American flag in her living room. 
Wow. So, yeah, there was stuff like that. And, yeah, and they would ask us, like, you know, please don't, you know, wear too much Dragon Town and, you know, stuff like that. Was anyone so else have to doing live there? that sort of thing? Like, the what? Uh, so I'm imagining you two as drag queens or trans-feminine queer people traveling around in the rural United States doing performances. Was that right. was anyone else doing anything like that, or had you ever heard of anyone doing that? Not, no, not, not... Well, like I said, there was this group that I've heard of that was more like, I think, New York-based um, yeah. called Hot Peaches. And then right. they went to England, and they teamed up with another group that also performed a lot in New York that you might have heard of called Blue Lips. And Blue Lips was doing kind of taking, um, let's say, Sleeping Beauty and turning it into a political satire kind of drag wow. show. That's the kind of thing. Uh, or also, maybe Sleeping Beauty isn't a good example, but that's in our play that we do. And I can't think of... They would do funny, funny skits and drag and stuff. And Betty Bourne. Oh, they would do biblical tales too. Biblical tales and um, uh, they were they were hysterical. They're from England. The Blue Lips are from England. And hot and peaches. Hot, hot peaches. Hot peaches. Hot peaches. Yeah. Yeah, and that's Marcia, the one that Marsha Johnson was in. Yeah. Yeah. She was just a you like you know like an honorary guest member. Yeah. Cuz she was a little bit, you know, like I said she was a diva and she was a little bit scattered. So she right. couldn't necessarily be a full-time member of of uh a group, I don't think. Yeah. What was Hot Peaches like? Hot Peaches were kind of like a cross between us and uh Blue Lips. Mm-hmm. Do you know them? Have you heard of them, Blue Lips? I haven't, no. I okay. don't know a lot about the history of performance. Oh, okay. I haven't. I, I haven't learned very much about it. Do you know of a drag queen that used to perform in New York named Yolanda? I've heard the name. Okay. She used to come and perform at Idapalooza, and I've mm-hmm. heard she's maybe getting a little bit more away from that now. So I don't. I was going to ask you if you knew anything about. No, her, I don't. Her scene. So you were touring for a couple of years, and then you were in Amsterdam for a couple yeah, of years. I sure was. And your life in Amsterdam. What was that like? Well, that was kind of funny. I tried to, you know, fit in. I got a verblijfsvergunning, which means an actual permit to stay. I didn't ever try to become a full-blown citizen, but I had a stamp in my passport that said, you have the right to live here uh, because I was married to this Dutch lesbian. And we've since divorced so she could marry another lesbian. And um, uh, anyway, um, I went to Dutch class to learn Dutch And then I went to, they have a lot of government subsidized programs. And one of the programs was like a vocational guidance kind of thing where they like offer you different kind of jobs. And the one job that I was really interested in and wanted to try to do was house painting, 
like literally like, you know, painting walls and houses and stuff like that. And unfortunately, he said my Dutch wasn't good enough, which I just didn't get. I was like, how hard can it be to just say, take a paintbrush and go over here and paint this wall? And I mean, my Dutch was okay, but it wasn't great. But I just thought it surely should have been suffice enough to be able to paint houses. But anyway, I didn't get the job. So um, I mostly was a nanny to babies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, my friend had babies. And I was a nanny in San Francisco for those six months to my Maxine's nephew for the first six months of his life. And he's getting married next year. Can you believe that? I was his nanny. Anyway... So these kids that were babies, well, one was a little boy, and then he had a baby sister, and I mostly took care of the baby sister. Um, That's great. And so then you ended up at Ida. I ended up at Ida. Lo and behold, who knew? I came one summer in August. I landed at the airport, dumped out onto the sidewalk with all my bags after, like, you know, God knows how many trains, how many buses, how many planes, and I'm standing there at the Nashville airport in the August heat, and there's nobody there to greet me, and I'm just like, what have I gotten myself into? Like, you know, I had this cushy life. Well, not cushy, but, you know, I had this life going on in Amsterdam, and now here I am standing at the airport, and then this cute, adorable boy walks up to me and goes, Hi, my name's Triscuit, and I met you at an ACT-UP demonstration in Chicago. Oh, I could tell you about that one. That was a pretty memorable one. That's when we went to the insurance companies that are all based in Chicago, and we went to Prudential, and our chant there was, you can't get a piece of the rock if you've had a piece of cock. That's great. (laughs) What was your uh, memory of Ida when you first arrived? What was it like? Oh, it was like, you know, arriving at another fairyland, kind of like a Wolf Creek, you know, in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. Describe it. Oh, it's like, okay, so it's down in a, in a, in a hollow, or as they call them here, hollers. So it's mm-hmm. in between two mountain ridges, but it's just lush and green and, beautiful and there's a creek that runs by it and um so when i moved there there was two main houses that were each built in like the 30s and 40s and then uh, by each house one was in the front and one was in the back so obviously they were called the front house and the back house and then by each of those houses was an old barn and the barn became a, a performance space of course each barn in its own right. Like the Eggplant Fairy Players, when we started it up again at Ida, we would perform and rehearse in the back barn. In fact, I have some beautiful black and white photos of me performing with my friends, the one that I was telling you about, the Condom Recycling Factory, my friend Ha, who I have to mention just on tape. And the other friend I have to mention is Ortez Alderson. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he was probably... He was in the MHA affinity group with me and also in Surrender Dorothy. We were in it together, and we were probably, we worked at the AIDS hotline together. We were probably the most politically aligned of any two people, 
you know. And he used to be a Black Panther. And then wow. uh, from that, got involved in ACT UP. And, you know, he was a real firecracker. But I have to mention him without letting his name pass. And he, would, he moved back when he came out HIV positive or tested HIV positive. He moved back to Chicago. And I have to say, ACT UP Chicago really had it going on with a group of people that would go and help take care of him and support him and, you know, bring him food, hot meals, and care for him and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We, we didn't really talk about race in ACT UP. Like, were, yeah. how many people of color were there? What were some of the racial dynamics well, in the group? There was, there was uh, uh, a, hand, a handful. I don't know. I don't want to say a handful of, of a minority. I guess of of uh, black people, and uh, I don't even know if that's the right word to use. There were black people, but I couldn't tell you what the what the makeup. Yeah. was of, you know, percentages or something like that, if that's what you're looking for. But I know with Ortez, it was a, a point of frustration that there wasn't more, you know, black people involved. And um, do, you, do you remember any conversations about that? Oh, yeah. Uh, like, all the time. Like, uh, in fact, we had conversations about um, how he didn't like people calling each other fags because he said it was like he would refuse to use the N-word and he kind of instilled in me like never to use that word because he said that's just self-oppression and self-hate. And um, uh, he, But he did have a white partner, which was kind of interesting. And one of the reasons why he and I became so close was because he took me home to meet his partner and I got along swimmingly with his partner, but a lot of people in ACT UP thought, you know, he was a little not right for Ortez and, you know, were like, what is Ortez doing with him? And, or what's he doing? You know, like, why are they together? And I was just like, well, why is that anyone's business? You know, they're a couple. Like, what was that judgment about? Why would people say that? Um, he was a little quirky, like, um, and I don't know if I should actually get into this on recording. That's fine. Um, if you want yeah. to take the recording off, I'll tell you personally. No, it's okay. But, um, yeah, it was just he was quirky, and let's say due to some circumstances in his past for being gay, he was, you know. Uh, institutionalized and yeah. uh, treated very badly. And um, as a result, you know, would be a little bit quirky. And yeah. I thought that was, you know, I was just like, whatever, because I was used to quirky fairies, you know. Fairies are right. be very quirky. And um, uh, so when people would be like, what's he doing with him? I'd just be like, why is that any of your business? They love each other. You know, that's the important thing. 
and he was with him till he died. So, you know. Wow. And he saved. So the night that we opened in Copenhagen on our first U.S. tour, we got a telegram. Um, and it was the first telegram Maxine had ever gotten in his life. And we got up to perform. And people were wondering, it was a European ILGA conference. I don't know if you know ILGA. It's the International Lesbian Gay Association. Mm-hmm. And they were having a European conference. And they were all wondering, like, what are these two Americans doing at this European conference? Because it was supposed to be for Europeans. And, um, but we were the entertainment. They didn't know that. And so we got up to perform, and we performed the first night. And after the first night, Maxine said, I want to read you this telegram. It's the first telegram I've ever gotten in my life. And it was from Ortez's partner telling us that Ortez had died. Mm-hmm. And there was not a dry eye in the house after that. And my friend, who the, the Dutch lesbian that I ended up married, marrying, came up to our table and said, you must come to the Netherlands and perform for us after watching us perform and hearing that telegram. And um, so that's how we got our first European tour was because all these people from Dresden, Germany and uh, Cologne, Germany and or Kuln as it's called over there and, you know, smaller little places wanted us to come perform and this was shortly after the wall had just come down and when we went to Dresden we actually had a translator translate our show the first year it was the uh, review that I was telling you where I did the phone skits and we did Winnie the Pooh and the Lorax and all that kind of stuff and that one was called Fairy Tales Fairy Tales with the fairy and tail spelled differently each time. And um, the second year was the original play called Queens Are Wild. And we brought back some of the characters that were in the skits and turned them into this canasta game that they played at Barbara Broadcast's house. And um, it was an original two-act play. So you've been uh, at Ida for a while now. Um, well, I no longer what? live at Ida. I live at a place called Sassafras. Sassafras. Is, okay. Yeah. When did you move from Ida to Sassafras? Uh, two years ago. Okay. And so I, broadly, what are some of the major things that have happened for you uh, during your time in Tennessee and in that area? Well, I definitely um, have... Uh, you know, transitioned in in my identity as with my gender. Tell us and, about that. Okay, well, that came down to one night at a meeting where we were going around, and we usually would go around and people would be like, I prefer to be called he, I prefer to be called she. Other people would say he or she, it doesn't matter. And that would usually be the one I would say. And then finally somebody called me out on it and said, no, I heard that you said you wanted to be called she. And I said, well, if it is a preference, if we're saying it's a preference here, then I would prefer to be called she and be her. And so from then on, I was 
she and her. And so that was the shift of my gender identity. When did uh, they start doing those go-arounds to check in about pronouns? Oh, it was quite some time after Plan Z, but I remember Plan Z. I don't know if you remember people doing that there. I going, do. What's your preferred pronoun? Yes, I and do, that was sort I do of, remember that. That was sort of our awakening to that consciousness of preferred pronouns. And then, Describe you know, to me the would, shift for you between uh, being in fairy community in the 80s and 90s when, you know, everyone uh, would be referred to as girl, but uh, there's some way, but you, and, and, then, and then this, like you beginning to really have a preference around she. Well, I tell like, you, what was, what that was like, fun about it, what was fun about it, in New York, say, and being an act up and being in a dress is when you're in a dress on the subway and you're done up, there was one, oh, that's another funny one I'll have to tell you, but I'm also being asked to maybe start wrapping it up. So oh, maybe okay. we, this will be to be continued. Um, sure. Uh, but I'll tell you two funny stories real quick and one was where I did try to pass and I shaved I even shaved my chest hair I wore a Jackie O A-frame black dress and long black opera gloves and I went with Ortez to this Republican ladies tea party now this is when Bush Bush number one was in office and they were having a Republican ladies tea party which actually was a cocktail party but again the graphic artist got a hold of one of the invitations and made a bunch of knockoffs so we could show up with our invitations and present them there. And I showed up with Ortez. And Ortez is quite a bit shorter than me, and as you figured out, black. And I'm six feet tall and white. And so we're standing there, and he's introducing me as his wife. And I'm like biting the insides of my cheek, trying just not to bust out laughing because he's an actor too. And he would go up to the black people there and go like, uh, you're, you vote Republican, right? You, you vote Republican in Manhattan? And, the, and Ortez would be like, oh, yes, yes, of course. We have a place on the Upper West Side, and then we also have a house in Connecticut, but we vote <laughs> in Manhattan. And it was just so funny. And then he'd go to introduce me to people, and I'd hold out my long, gloved, opera-length, gloved hand, and the man would just look at me like he didn't know whether to take it. Like, I'd hold it out for him to kiss it, and he didn't know whether to take it or, like... But anyway, when they found out that there was going to be some disruption, this kid that was in the Young American Republicans, the YAR, came up to us and said... To Ortez, listen, we heard there's going to be some trouble. Can you help us out? And Ortez was like, yeah, man, tell us. Anything you need, we'll, there, we're going to help you. And so in, our, in my pocketbook, I had our buttons that said lesbians for Bush. And we took out our buttons and put them on that said lesbians for Bush. And the kid walked up to Ortez and saw the button and said, oh, you're for Bush, right? And Ortez was like, yes, absolutely. And so... He said that, you know, there was going to be this disruption. Well, when he saw that we were with them, the disruptors, you should have seen his face just fall. It was so priceless. And, wow. Um, 
when we did finally disrupted we got brutally shoved out of there very quickly like down some stairs like shoved down some stairs but mostly I, I the difference i was going to say at that time i took a cab i didn't even take the subway but the, the thing i loved about being in a dress with a full beard on the subway is there is no denying that that is a man in a dress on the subway whereas if i shave and do the whole you know nine yards then they can kind of pretend like oh maybe that's not really a man you know maybe that's just a tall woman or you know what i mean but if i have a full-on beard then it's like total gender fuck and they're like no that man is wearing a dress there's no t getting around it you know no matter how much people try to ignore and look away it's like still you know breaking through a barrier that you know something is in their mind wrong with this picture you know what how I'm do you um define your gender now spree well, well i still go by she and her and i um so if you ask me i would say you know i'm a girl like on the thing i wrote she her girl because i wanted you know to be identified that way um i don't know what it actually means as if you ask me about further transitioning i don't know yeah. i just know that that's as far as i've come in my journey you've come a long way <laughs> yes from uh bearded drag queen radical fairy drag queen in act up to tennessee girl fairy that's lovely so <laughs> you're you were saying that there are people there anxious for you to get off the phone oh no just they uh, we have a pickup rehearsal tonight and they oh, want to make okay. sure i leave a little time to rest before my rehearsal okay well then i'll so, let you get going it's so oh, no, nice if you want to ask me if you have something else you want to ask me i just looked at my watch and realized we've been at it a while so i don't know if you yeah. need to go or have other questions or well i i'm really interested in, in hearing more about this shift in how you understand your gender I mean, uh -huh. I, I came out as a trans woman in 2000, so 16 okay. years ago, and uh -huh. I, um, I was never really integrated into a, 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 the kind of gay male world of drag queens and where this sort of widespread trans femininity on some level. Um, oh, and uh -huh. I, and I, and I'm interested just in in what what felt different for you in when you started saying that you wanted to go by she like did did you think you were discovering something else in yourself or that the you were yes, evolving I, or the community was evolving what what was I that think, shift like I think all of those I think you've put your finger right on it is it's like a shift in the community because of the go-rounds that I was telling you and then a shift in myself and also just the thing that like think about I mean I think about what fun it would have been to go to Woolworths with a dollar 
and get nail polish and stuff to do my hair and, or, you know, I, I was not allowed to play with dolls, obviously, when I was growing up. Like, so eventually I bought myself one with my own money, um, you know, but I was a little bit old for dolls at that point. Um, but I just, you know, it was the principle of it. I wanted to have one, so... Um, but, you know, I just think about what fun it would have been to, to, to oh, oh, and buy earrings. Oh, my God, earrings. Like the things I could have bought at Woolworths. I don't know if you know what a Woolworths is, but I it's do. like a yeah. five and dime that doesn't really exist that much anymore. Except I think they still exist in England. But um, I could have bought lipstick, could have bought nail color, earrings, so many fun, girly things that I just wasn't allowed to, you know, explore yeah. that part of the, explore that part of my child in my childhood. And then, yeah, so when I got that chance like met the fairies and got that chance, it was like, whoa, this is like getting to revert to childhood a little bit, you know? Like wear big earrings and lipstick and paint my nails. I go yeah. in and get pedicures now. That's fun. And bring my own color. I'd say, I'd like to have a pedicure, and I'd like you to put on this color. And they kind of look at me, and then they're like, okay. <laughs> so the, the fairy community that you live in has changed a lot over the years that you've been there. Yes. Yeah, what are, besides the pronoun go-arounds, what are some of the ways that it's changed? Well, it, with Ida, it, I would say it's mostly trans-identified now. Yeah. So the trans people kind of came in and and uh, now are in charge of the place. And what makes somebody trans uh, in an environment where there's always been a lot of drag? Like what's well, different about I, being trans? I think with that it's people that uh, do hormones Yeah. Uh, and then also pursue various and sundry and you probably know more much more about it than I do the different forms of surgery that one can have whether it's you know having testicles removed or um, uh, you know top surgeries uh, you know all the all the various gamuts along the way you know yeah so a shift from to do different things. Sorry. So a shift from femininity being mostly about dressing up to including changes in the body. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's very and I remember at that Plan Z being in my first ever tea party where people were doing tea and I got to be in the party. Um, it's it was the kind that you rub on. Not the injecting kind, but the rub-on testosterone. And that was really fun. I remember getting to be in on that and like, oh, this is really exciting. And, uh, and then, then some the, people that... Yeah? Some people that are really hardcore about, you know, doing injections several times a day and then the opposite, doing the female hormones, you know... And I know it's 
really I lived with one person that was doing that and it was really hardcore at certain times of the month where that uh, hormone would be wearing off and they'd be going through this you know frustrating time where they needed the shot but weren't able to get it and stuff like that yeah and then the one other thing that occurred to me is uh, it seems like moving back to Tennessee is also moving back to the south for you. Yeah, isn't that wild that I ended up back yeah. here? But, you know, when I think about it, I never really thought two things. I never really thought of Tennessee as being that much in the south. Because when you – what I say to people is when you spend the years 10 to 17 in southern Georgia, then I'll talk to you. You know, because it, it is the South, you're right, but it's not that South. That is like really deep, deep, deep South when you're talking Southern Georgia. Like, you know, 370 miles South of Atlanta. Um, and, um, uh, but I never thought it was that far South and I never thought it was get as cold as it gets. So you're, I must have thought it was in somewhat in the there, southern right? region. Huh? You're a little bit in the mountains there, yeah? Yeah, yeah, in the mountains. And it gets cold. Especially and in I, Idaho where we were living with wood stoves. That's mostly winter is like gathering around the wood stove, trying to huddle and stay warm. And as a last question, uh, what what do you think is different for you between living in the country and in nature uh, compared to living in New York? Like what oh are, what gosh. are some things sanity. that are special? Yeah, sanity, sanity for one thing. I think living in New York, it got to be too much of a people crunch for me. Like I yeah. just thought, I'm so tired of fighting for a piece of the sidewalk. You know what I mean? Like just to be able to walk down the street and there were times when I remember I would have like two days off in a row and I literally would not leave my apartment. I would be like, I'm staying in, I'm not going out there. You know, just, um, it was like too much, too much, too much, too, too much. And here it's so peaceful and so beautiful. And just like looking out my window now, I'm in the tops of trees. You know, and it's that beautiful sunny day, and there's mountains right over there, and then the blue sky with the big puffy clouds, and stars at night. Oh my God, the stars that you can see at night. That's what this play is all about, is seeing all the stars. And I feel so bad for you in New York when you can see like maybe a handful of stars, and that's exciting. And there's so many. There's so, so many that you don't get That's to see. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Spree. I really appreciate this conversation. Oh, that's a great note to end on. I can't believe we ended on that note. Wow. Oh, thank you. No, that was wonderful. And if you want, I'm serious about it. If you want to continue or you think of more questions or whatever, let's keep in touch. Like, you've got my email now. I sent you I those other guys' to. email and use the same number to get in touch with Maxine. Okay. You can get in touch with me. 
and then I send them back I, to and you. And this so, really inspires me to want to come to Ida Palooza next year. So I'll make a real oh, okay. effort to do that. Okay. And so I will also I'll send you, if you're interested, information on how to look up the person living with AIDS, because that was that a project great. somebody just worked on in Toronto and got Michael's version together and my version together, and now they're both online. Wow. Yeah, I'd love to check that out. Okay. Okay. Take care, Spree. Okay. Thank you so much, Michelle. You too. Goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye.